Welcome to this new edition of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain Educational Podcast, AAOP. I am Isabel Moreno Hay, Program Director of the Orofacial Pain Program at the University of Kentucky. And today we have with us our co-host, Dr. Sani. She's a clinical assistant professor within the Department of Oral Medicine and Diagnostic Sciences at the University of Illinois Dental School. She's also engaged in private practice, where she treats patients with orofacial pain and oral medicine-related conditions. And she's a diplomat of the American Board of Orofacial Pain and fellow of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Sani. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Moreno, um, just for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad that you are able to join us today, Dr. Sani, because we're going to be discussing about patients that suffer from burning mouth with one of the renowned experts in this field, Dr. Greg Miller. Dr. Miller is the Alvin L. Morris Professor of Oral Health Research and Division Chief of Oral Diagnosis, Oral Medicine, and Oral Radiology at the University of Kentucky College of Dentistry. He has been in the university for 33 years and holds a joint appointment in the College of Medicine. Dr. Miller has had a prolific scientific career, authoring 11 book titles and more than 300 scientific articles and commentaries that have appeared in more than 60 scientific journals. He has collaborated with more than 100 scientists and clinicians. And he's passionate about education and has helped mentor hundreds of dental, medical, graduate, and undergraduate students. Dr. Miller, I'm very proud to be one of those graduate students, uh, and I was honored to have you as a mentor. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure to be here too, Dr. Moreno, and I hope to share a little bit of knowledge about Birdie Mouth with uh, your audience. Thank you so much. Dr. Miller, I would like to start uh, with my first question, which uh, is in regards to terminology. I always get confused myself. What is the most appropriate uh, terminology, burning mouth syndrome or burning mouth disorder? Well, it's a great question, Dr. Moreno. Um, And what I'm a little bit passionate about, it came about many years ago when I was asked the same question in front of a large audience by a uh, person in the audience, and it made me think about whether it's burning mouth syndrome or burning mouth disorder. Actually, there's several terms that are used to describe patients that have burning mouth symptoms, and those include stomatopyrosis and oral dysesthesia, and if it's just the tongue that's involved, glossodynia, a burning tongue, sore tongue, glossopyrosis. So there are many terms that are out there that can be a little bit confusing. And actually, when you look at the ICD-10 coding, um, it it comes up under glossodynia. Nevertheless, um, several international organizations, including the International Association for the Study of Pain, uh, call it Bernie Mouse Syndrome, as does the International Headache Society. But I prefer calling it Bernie Mouse Disorder for uh, several reasons. First off, a syndrome by the definition, if you look it up in Webster, one of the dictionaries, it's really a group of signs and symptoms that occur together and characterize a particular abnormality or condition. And implied in this definition of a syndrome is that there's a common cause, 
a common biological abnormality that leads to similar physiological changes that contribute to a collection or a single uh, clinical feature or uh, physical feature. And so the one real physical feature in this case is that patients have uh, the symptom of burning, burning in their mouth, somewhere in their mouth. And key to a definition of syndrome really is that it's a predictable group of clinical findings that occur in everybody that has the syndrome. But the other things that are sort of associated with burning mouth, which is um, some patients have taste abnormalities, some have some other neurological abnormalities, some have a dry mouth. They're just not consistent across every single patient that has burning complaints. And so syndrome really does not display, these patients do not display uh, uh, always a consistent set of symptoms or features, and some patients have these or not. And hence, I think this definition needs to evolve towards the way we look at temporal mandibular disorders. When that was first given a term, it was known as Costin's syndrome and eventually migrated to temporal mandibular syndrome. And now we call it TMD, temporal mandibular disorder. So I really think that the term syndrome should be sort of tossed out. Nevertheless, it's, it's hanging around and uh, slowly we'll hopefully push it out. As uh, I mentioned, not all these patients have the same kinds of features and, and throwing in that some of these patients have depression um, is not really fair too because there's a lot of conditions where patients have depression and I certainly would be depressed if I was had a burning mouth and, and I went to multiple providers and couldn't get relief from it. So it's not surprising that depression may be part of that either because they have the burning that can't be resolved, can't be treated well, or because they have other life events going on, other stressors that have created depressive events. So um, again, I'm hopeful that we, we migrate to burning mouth disorder, and I would abbreviate that BMD instead of BMS, which is for burning mouth syndrome. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. So you have already alluded at some of the, the clinical features, but what is the typical clinical presentation of a patient with burning mouth disorder and how prevalent is it in the, in the general population? Well, burning mouth syndrome often, or burning mouth disorder often presents with patients that have, um, if you're rating their pain, patients self-report pain on a level of zero to 10, often it's a moderate level of pain. Some have severe, it can range oftentimes from between three and seven, but some patients can present at eight, nine, or even a 10 burning sensation. Uh, it's not the only thing that they report. They might also report some tingling and paresthesia with it, some tenderness with it. If you use a McGill um, Melzac form, they may uh, show other indicators, and that, that isn't always well reported in the literature. But burning is the primary complaint. It's most often on the tongue, most often on the anterior tongue, off, most often bilaterally, and may involve these lateral sides of the tongue can involve the palate. If it does, it typically is more often the anterior third of the hard palate than posteriorly. Uh, some patients may have unilateral pain, and, and those that I have seen over the years typically would have that on the uh, gingiva, the buccal surfaces. Uh, maybe patients could have a concurrent lip burning. And so burning of the tongue is primary, but other sites in the mouth are 
also common, but constitute probably less than 20% of the complaints seen um, by practitioners. Patients will often state that the burning goes away when they sleep, and some will say when they lay down or rest. Um, so there may be some sympathetic undertones to there, or sleep may help in um, giving relief, and often does. Patients usually say the pain occurs after awakening, sometimes mid-morning, and progressively worsens throughout the day. Now, Phil Lamy reported many years ago that there's three different types of burning mouth, but uh, that hasn't been well validated. Um, and one type that he did describe was the type I just described that starts in the morning, progresses throughout the day. Another type that he describes is some patients have variable levels of pain, but really we don't use the three types very often to uh, describe those patients. These patients often have accompanying oral dryness, tingling, paresthesia, tenderness, and maybe change in taste or dyskusia. It's most commonly occurs in postmenopausal women. Uh, the epidemiology suggests anywhere from 1% to 5% of the population can be affected, which would mean over 3 million Americans would be affected with burning sensations in their mouth. Most of the data shows that women exceed the prevalence to men somewhere anywhere between 3 to 1, 4 to 1, and all the way up to 8 to 1. Most of the studies support it's usually eight, around 80% or so women in 10 to 20% men. The average age in studies has been around 65 years of age, um, and it's rare to see this in patients under the age of 30. Um, certainly, this can come on at any time after postmenopausal age. Uh, and so there was a lot of studies that were done many years ago that looked at hormonal imbalances, um, but there's a lot of things that go on with aging as we all know, and I have found out uh, personally that, you know, as you age, you know, your body changes and there's an increased need for um, medical intervention. So one thing that's not reported very much is that it's much more prevalent in patients that have uh, other neurological conditions. And I think that gives you a kind of a general summary that more often than not, we're going to see this in a clinical setting with a patient who's postmenopausal female who's had the complaint for anywhere from a year to two years and probably seen multiple providers trying to gain relief. That's really interesting. So you mentioned that uh, it has been associated with other neuropathic conditions or it seems to, to be comorbid with them. Is it common for these patients that complain of burning mouth to also complain of burning in other mucosas of their body? In my experience, these patients may have other sites in their oral cavity that burn. So as mentioned, maybe their heart palate or buccal mucosa or even their lips. Not as often would they complain of burning in other mucosal sites or other cutaneous sites uh, unless the patient had a, a condition that's really, really not burning mouth. Maybe they have lichen planus that needs to be ruled out. And so lichen planus obviously can occur on genital surfaces as well as oral surfaces, as well as uh, skin and cutaneous surfaces. The eyes are not really a site for burning complaints unless the patient maybe has concurrent dry eyes and maybe Sjogren's syndrome. So this is a condition that's been largely qualified to the oral cavity. I'm very curious, Dr. Miller, what is the pathophysiology involved in this condition? Uh, what are the mechanisms involved in burning mouth disorder? 
That's a great question. And if we knew the answer to that, probably our therapies would be more effective. But there is some some evidence to suggest that it's a small fiber neuropathy. Um, those studies that have been performed have also been on a small number of patients. So really, we start to accumulate the data sets and say, okay, where is this data arising? And with the small fiber neuropathy papers, there's been maybe three to five papers, each one, and really maybe 10 patients, and they find abnormalities on biopsy, and when they look for TRIP uh, V1 or look for PGP 9.5, which are indicators of neural fibers and neural receptors, that they're altered or damaged or in lower number in the biopsy side of the time of these patients. But again, it's a very small number. It's hard to, to base base everything on that. And also every patient may not be the same as I'll uh, explain a little bit more. Nevertheless, the data that was published by Lari in his paper in um, pain did show these sort of disintegrating nerve endings and fewer branching, which is similar to what you might see in shingles or herpes zoster infection that damages the nerve endings. The question is, is why would those nerve endings be damaged? Under those circumstances, it is possible the patient may have had a triggering event or initiating event where they actually traumatized uh, their tongue. Um, oftentimes, we elicit the, during the chief complaint that the patient may say that they burned their tongue on really hot food and that initiated the complaint, or they ate some really spicy food, or the combination thereof, it was very hot and spicy. And so under those circumstances, certainly we could see that maybe there was damage that occurred and maybe there is a small fiber neuropathy. But that's not a consistent historical event. Not all patients uh, state that occurred or nor do they remember it. Some do. And unfortunately, as clinicians, we don't seem to use that fact to uh, affect our, our treatment algorithm. So in other words, we don't really ask routinely if there was an initiating event, and if so, move to panel A and start treating patients that have initiating event differently than those that don't have initiating event. So backing up, if there's a small nerve or fiber neuropathy, would that be the only thing that, that went on? And my answer would be no, that's not the only thing that's been proven in a, in a paper that we published with uh, Dr. Albuquerque and many others from the orofacial pain uh, division at the University of Kentucky, we published in, in the journal Pain showing FMRI results that there are neurological differences at the central nervous system level for these patients, including at the thalamus level, at the uh, anterior cingulate level, and the preconeus levels, that, that there's different types of pain perception within the brain in burning mouth patients versus non-burning mouth patients who were controls. So it, I cannot put patients into just one single category. We have not come to that. And if there was a single category, then our treatments probably would be a little bit more uh, effective. Uh, we do know that a lot of these patients, you, you have to rule out of a lot of conditions with them. And so we have to rule out you know, GERD and parafunctional activity and hyposalivation, as well as hormonal imbalances and anemia. So I can go into a little bit of detail, but there's even been reports in some patients with burning mouth 
uh, having alterations in their mast cells or mast cell activation disorder. So there's lots of things that can cause burning in the mouth. And uh, the clinician needs to be astute in their diagnostic workup to get at the etiology. If I may follow up uh, on that, um, I have a, another question regarding the onset, the presentation of, of this uh, disorder. Um, in trigeminal neuralgia, typically the patient will report that the pain started from one day to another. They were able to actually remember the exact date, what they were doing uh, when they experienced their first uh, paroxysmal episode of pain. How? What's typically the onset in burning mouth disorder? As you said, is there an initiated event? Is it something that progressively comes up? Does the patient just wake up one morning and they have it? What is the usual um, patient history in that regard? So in my experience, as well as reading the literature, these patients generally do not remember initiating an event. The majority do not. So what's the majority? So my estimate would be about 60 to 75% of patients don't remember an exact day, exact time, exact event. Nevertheless, somewhere around 20 to 25% of patients do remember that. And if you ask that question, uh, it can give you some insight to maybe there was some damage or not to some nerve endings in, in the locality of the oral cavity. The ones that don't recall an event, it seems to just kind of come on insidiously slowly they start to notice that they're, they have a burning sensation in their mouth. Oftentimes they may complain of an abnormal taste in their mouth at the same time. Hence, that's why um, people have tried to say this is a syndrome, but not all patients have an alteration in taste and not all of them are depressed either. So it um, comes on kind of slow. And, um, and I think there's a, an explanation with that, that, uh, has to do with aging and some of the medications patients take as we age. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Uh, I have a question, and actually, thank you for clarifying all these important concepts for all of us. Uh, that's really important, actually, for our fellow listeners. Uh, that leads us to the next question, which is kind of the conditions uh, which we need to rule out in a patient that complains of burning mouth. Okay, so there are several conditions that we need to rule out when the patient presents with burning complaints in their mouth. I'll put these in three major categories. The first category is drugs. We have to look at their drugs that they take and how long they've taken certain drugs. We also have to rule out systemic conditions. And thirdly, we have to look at oral conditions that may mimic burning mouth disorder, but produce burning from a, for another reason. So let's start with drugs. The most common drugs that would um, be associated with burning complaints are ACE inhibitors. And there's a whole host of ACE inhibitors. Uh, I generally tell students that they typically, the generic name ends in pril, P-R-I-L. So that would be drugs like lisinopril, fosinopril, ramipril, trade names such as Altase, Prinavil, Zestril, Mavic, things like that. So these drugs have been associated with burning complaints, as have other drugs like levodopa and uh, other neuroleptics, uh, topiramate, and um, some of the antivirals that are used even in HIV treatment. So we, we do need to look at, at look up drugs, uh, make sure that those uh, may or may not be contributing to the burning complaints. So it's part of the process. As we sort of move towards systemic conditions, one of the things that you want to rule out is allergies. I think this tends to get a little bit overlooked by 
dentists and physicians, we don't really do a lot of allergy testing on our patients. Nevertheless, studies have shown that patients that have burning mouth complaints have a higher rate of allergies to certain heavy metals uh, than control populations, as well as the have um, positive uh, prick, skin prick tests to certain inhalants and nutrient, nutritive allergens. So substances that they eat, uh, spices, things like that. And so that would be an easy way to treat a patient as burning complaints if they're just allergic to cinnamon or some other spice and if that could be eliminated from the diet. Systemically, we want to rule out the anemias. Sometimes anemia can present itself with obvious oral depapillated lesions of the tongue or even those could turn reddish and erythematous. Those can occur on the palate, but more often than not, they occur on the tongue and the tongue becomes bald and smooth, but it can be patchy smooth or patchy red. And that is a, a hint. And we can treat that with uh, vitamin, vitamin B12, for example, cyanocobalamin. Intraorally, patients can have burning complaints if they have fungal infections, such as candidiasis. That is rather easy to treat with an antifungal and eliminating sugar from the diet. Um, it can recur. So burning in those situations, we need to identify is the burning occurring in an area that uh, is where the candidiasis is occurring. And you can do a fungal culture on Savarol's media to rule that out along the way. Now, many patients that have burning complaints have concurrent geographic tongue or geographic stomatitis, and it is the clinician's role to rule out whether the burning is really due to burning mouth disorder or is it really just burning complaints associated with geographic tongue. So one way to do that is that geographic tongue, if it, it 99% of the time geographic tongue is asymptomatic, but in the 1% of the times that it is symptomatic, it's when it presents with a red border at the uh, circinate edge of these geographic lesions. So if, it, if there's a white border or a, uh, a faded border, that typically is asymptomatic. But with a red border, oftentimes that can cause a burning sensation. That's easy to distinguish because all you have to do is touch the, the red areas and ask them if it burns there and then touch the depapillated areas and ask if it burns in the depapillated areas. And oftentimes patients will respond that, the burning only is at the red areas, not at the depapillated areas or in the other areas that are not depapillated. And hence, you can say, well, this is just symptomatic geographic tongue. Now, symptomatic geographic tongue is not that easy to treat, but nevertheless, um, it's not burning mouth disorder. And so you need to rule that out along with the other conditions we talked about, including lichen planus, uh, which can cause burning complaints in the oral cavity, either on the tongue or on the gingiva. The uh, have to rule out the drugs that we talked about along the way, as well as the anemias. And a good diagnostic workup should include ruling out psychological distress. So I'm not here to advise which psychological tests that you might perform as a clinician, but there's a whole host of those, including the SCL90, Beck's anxiety inventory, the depression anxiety stress scales, the Hamilton anxiety scales that you know, there's the, the mini mental uh, state uh, examination, the hospital anxiety and depression scale. So something should be used to assess this in your diagnostic workup because it is very helpful. And, and then ruling out hyposalivation is, is key. 
and we can spend a few minutes talking about that if that's of interest. Uh, thank you, Dr. Miller. I have a follow-up question. I actually uh, have seen some patients who are complaining or labeled that as BMD, but then they're more complaining of unilateral uh, burning symptoms on the tongue. Um, would there be more a neurological, comprehensive neurological workup on those patients, like MRI of the brain or uh, similar things should be ruled out because that could be more like a neuropathic pain situation? So, which is different from yeah, I think it's always wise to collaborate with our neuro neurology colleagues to consider getting scans of the brain to rule out any entity that could be contributed to neuropathies. Certainly, you wouldn't want to miss a, a neurological abnormality in the brain, like a brain tumor or anything like that. In my experience, very few of the patients I've seen with brain mouth have had concurrent neurological abnormalities, but that doesn't mean that they um, couldn't, couldn't have one of these. And so if, if it's on the lateral border of the tongue versus the tip, I'm not making a judgment to say, oh, this patient should be scanned because it's on the lateral border but a patient who has it on the tip, I'm not going to scan their brain. I think uh, the diagnostic workup should consider, you know, what, what are the most likely causes of burning in these patients? Are there any other abnormalities like paresthesias, dysesthesias, um, loss of sensation? Certainly anybody that has a paresthesia associated with it should get a brain scan. And so if they have a dysesthesia, the dysesthesia needs to be carefully evaluated because uh, many of these patients, the dysesthesia sort of fits under taste abnormality and dysgeusia. And a patient who lacks saliva can have alterations in taste, and oftentimes that is a complaint of theirs. And so that can overlap into this, and we can sort of misread that the dysesthesia or dysgeusia is, oh, possibly a brain problem when the more likely thing is that they lack saliva. Um, Dr. Miller, I wanted to follow up as well with um, what you mentioned about ruling out allergies. Um, so would you recommend then that if a patient comes with burning mouth complaints, that we refer them to the primary care physician or maybe an aller allergist? And what panel do we ask for? Do they do a regular screening or do we ask for specific ones? How would you uh, prescribe that, that, uh, that referral? So that's a great question. Um, I think, as I mentioned, the clinicians are not really good at, at, at making a referral for allergy because it's just something that we don't routinely do. Nevertheless, the referral becomes more important as you try treating these patients and nothing seems to work. And so that's kind of where we default more often than not into uh, allergy testing when it could have been used early on, as Dr. Moreno is asking about. The uh, referral to an allergist is appropriate. Um, you know, you can go through their primary care to get to the allergist. I usually recommend a North American Trace series. So the North American Trace series has um, some heavy metals that are found in dental materials, although nowadays we're moved away from, you know, gold and other things and towards zirconium, but nevertheless, they can be tested that. And then you want to have the, communicate with the allergists about food allergies, the potential for different food substances. So this isn't the typical testing for pollen and grasses and, and things like that. Instead, we're much more interested in food substances. So that's really just communicating directly with the allergists and saying, look, I want to make sure that this patient's not allergic to any food substances or 
preservatives that might be found in certain products that they put in their mouths, such as toothpaste and things like that. So it's going to require a direct communication and, and uh, talk about the North American Trace Series along with that. Uh, about xerostomia, is there any con uh, association or connection between BMD and xerostomia or dry mouth? So that's a great question. And I, I am a strong believer that there's a strong association between xerostomia and BMD as well as hyposalivation. In fact, I've been digging through the literature for several years now just to accumulate the papers, the publications that talk about the relationship between xerostomia and BMD as well as hyposalivation. And I've pulled up a, a table here that I'm referring to to help answer this question. So there are at least eight publications that have directly looked at um, burning mouth disorder and xerostomia. They've looked at now over 2,800 patients and the relationship consistently shows that patients that have burning mouth disorder are 50% uh, to 90% of those patients have uh, the complaint of xerostomia with a mean of 70%. So that means seven out of 10 patients who present to the clinicians have a complaint of xerostomia concurrently with the um, burning mouth complaint. When one goes through the literature and looks at what percentage of patients actually have hyposalivation, meaning the clinician actually measured salivary flow. And there's more than one way to measure salivary flow, so this can get a little tricky too, but there's at least eight papers on that, probably more, but I've uh, accumulated eight of those. They have looked at over 400 patients, and in those studies, the um, average flow is low in these patients that have burning mouth being somewhere between 0.2 mils per minute and 0.3 on average, with several studies showing, uh, let's see, one, two, three, five of the eight studies have shown flow below 0.2 mils per minute. So I think it's underappreciated that patients walk in with concurrent dry mouth. I think if you ask a lot of clinicians now, they'll say, yes, the patient has a dry mouth or xerostomia, but that's not necessarily the cause of their burning. And I would tend to disagree with that. We did a study um, several years back where we looked at patients who were getting ready to undergo head and neck radiation. And these patients being exposed to head and neck radiation were going to lose the capacity to produce saliva. So we followed these patients. We collected their saliva at the beginning of treatment. I believe we saw 30 patients in the study. Uh, we saw them at two weeks into radiation and then at four weeks at, uh, after the completion of radiation. Their salivary flows dropped significantly by about 85 to 90% from baseline. And their concurrent xerostomia inventory scales uh, increased and directly correlated at a very high correlate with um, the reduction in saliva. So we showed a very strong correlation as, as your salivary flow goes down, burning complaints and xerostomic complaints rise. And the part of the difficulty here is that we as clinicians are not good at eliminating hyposalivation. So I'll pause there and allow you to ask other questions about that or wander in a new direction if you want. Uh, yes, I, and I totally agree with you, Dr. Miller, because I have faced um, similar situations when referral was made to our clinic um, and was specifically said BMD 
our BMS, um, but in the clinician referring, even a primary care has um, not mentioned about hyposalivation or xerostomia. Uh, they have just um, not been that careful. But then also, I think as practitioners, we miss that a lot. Um, and we are guilty of that because the patient we might be treating for BMD, but then this is a very important exclusion and maybe a treatment for these patients uh, for hyposalivation. So how do we assess um, in the clinic uh, hyposalivation? I know you've already touched base on that, but if you can provide us more details about that. Sure. So we do it very simply, and I, I like to keep things as simple as possible. We, uh, for we measure both unstimulated salivary flow as well as stimulated salivary flow. Unstimulated salivary flow, we measure by having the patient just sit in the chair calmly. We hand them a Dixie cup. We ask them to allow the saliva to accumulate in the mouth and to spit that out every 20 to 30 seconds. We collect that over a five-minute period typically. If time is limited, uh, two minutes is adequate for that but you want to make sure that the patient is not trying to work up any saliva by moving their tongue around, by squeezing or sucking on their cheeks, or bringing any fluid up from their uh, posterior oral cavity. Some patients realize that they don't produce much, so they want to help you when you ask them to uh, that you wanted to collect saliva. So they'll actually try to wiggle their tongue around and suck on their lips and cheeks and, and produce more saliva. And that's not really the goal here, and you have to explain that. No, we want to measure... Uh, realizing that you probably don't produce much, you know, let's see how much you do produce. And oftentimes it's, it's greatly reduced. Then we uh, have gone to over the years from chewing gum to measure stimulated to using a lemon lozenger uh, that's sugar-free. We give them one of those after we've collected unstimulated, and then we ask them to suck on the lozenger and to spit the saliva out again over five minutes. What's interesting about these two tests is that they're actually rather diagnostic to rule out Sjogren's syndrome, which is part of the process in, in a patient that has low salivary flow or has burning complaints in their mouth. Because in Sjogren's syndrome, they would produce low levels under both conditions, unstimulated and stimulated, whereas most patients that have medication-induced xerostomia, medication-induced hyposalivation, will have low unstimulated flow, but their stimulated flow generally is retained. Um, now, another group of people who may have low flow in both categories in addition to Sjogren's syndrome would be patients that have undergone radiation therapy, either head and neck radiation or possibly from treatment of thyroid cancer where they receive radioactive iodine. So it, it is a, a diagnostic test as well as um, Superlot Sjogren's radiation therapy versus burning mouth due to hyposalivation uh, associated with drugs that patients take. The typical amount of flow should be above, for unstimulated, above 0.3 mils per minute. And generally, they can produce anywhere from 0.3 to, to 1 or usually up to 0.7. Anybody that's below 0.2 is considered rather low, and 0.1 certainly uh, diagnostic as hyposalivate. So then you run into a bit of a problem when somebody comes back with this, you know, maybe a, a flow rate of 0.21 or 0.23. So they're low, below normal, but not really super low. Do you treat that or don't you treat that? It, it, it's much more obvious when the patients are 0.1 or below, it can't produce hardly any saliva. Now, oftentimes these patients that can't produce saliva also have abnormal tastes. 
And we just had a patient in yesterday who was classy for that. She is interesting because she rated her pain scale of eight on her follow-up visit. And we put her on a dry mouth protocol. Yet when the resident interviewed her, she said, oh, I don't have any pain. It's just I have a bad taste in my mouth. Nevertheless, she marked pain eight out of 10. We asked her multiple times, do you have any pain? She said, no, I don't have any pain. So we used this numerical um, visual analogs pain scales, and we assumed that the numbers that are reported in these uh, in the literature and in studies are accurate when, you know, there's, here's an example where it's, it's not that accurate. So how, how good are these pain scales? Again, they're subjectively reported. We use that data all the time. And one of the more interesting facts, I went through the three randomized controlled trials that looked at um, uh, other agents for treating birdie mouth. And, and then the eight to 10 studies that were case controlled studies and only one out of all the patients that have been evaluated in clinical studies, only one of those studies ruled out hyposalivation as a diagnostic criteria to proceed to receive the treatment they were interested in. So we continue to publish studies where we didn't rule out hyposalivation, yet we know that hyposalivation is present in these patients in about 70% of, of the patients. Thank you, Dr. Miller. That's really interesting uh, information. What are the treatment recommendations for patients with dry mouth? The ideal treatment would be to um, discontinue their current medications to see whether or not they would um, produce saliva, but we can't really do that because um, we're limited by the fact that these patients often are taking medicines that are required to manage their hypertension, their depression, and maybe their bladder. Certainly, bladder medications like oxybutynin and um, medicines for uh, depression like trazodone are extremely dry. And so a patient that's taking an antidepressant and antihypertensive and something for their bladder can greatly affect their salivary flow. And we have, we have discussions about that, you know, to start with, about can we reduce one of these medicines? Would you be willing to go off one of these medicines? For your depression, would you be willing to um, receive counseling and slowly taper your, your antidepressant and use counseling as an alternative mode for uh, your depression? So there are things that can be done, but it is difficult. And hence, we are very limited. I, I would love to do a study where patients that came in with burning mouth and we uh, got the physicians to agree, we would stop their medicines for two weeks and just see if their burning complaints went away. Uh, and then they go back on their medicines. And my guess is over half the patients' uh, burning complaints would improve because their mouth wouldn't be dry anymore. But those kinds of studies are going to be extremely difficult to do for you know, obvious reasons. So we, we generally treat with a dry mouth protocol, uh, which is sort of palliative in nature, lot, drinking lots of water, dissolving ice chips or small ice cubes that are flavored with either Mio or, or lemon drops, uh, mixing uh, a little bit of coconut oil into uh, their mouth or into water before they have a meal in case food is sticking or they have trouble swallowing. Yesterday's patient was classic. You know, she was spitting her saliva out uh, and not swallowing it. And so she said, well, it tastes bad and I don't want to swallow it. And I was explaining that we produce between 500 mils and a, mil and a liter of saliva every day. And we swallow that and it helps buffer the esophagus in the, in the stomach. 
by not swallowing or producing a half a half a uh, liter to a liter every day, those patients are more likely to have GERD. And many of our patients have concurrent GERD. And so many clinicians think that their GERD is just spreading to their oral cavity, but I think it's actually going the opposite direction. They're not producing saliva, hence it's causing GERD. Now, GERD doesn't necessarily come on at the same time as the burning, so a lot of people don't associate the two. It's like they have to occur simultaneously, uh, and they don't. They don't have to initiate simultaneously. So we also add in, in addition to drinking water, ice chips, coconut oil, sugarless gum, sugarless mints, sugarless candies, um, some emollients and salivary substitutes and salivary stimulants, such as pilocarpine or civimoline, also known as Ephesac. Uh, we'll put these patients, if they have a really dry mouth, on topical fluorides, maybe even Prevdent 5000, and then we swab their mouth to uh, rule out candidiasis because anyone who has a dry mouth is more likely to get candidiasis because saliva contains antifungal types of proteins in it, and without saliva, then you're more likely to get candidiasis. So the dry mouth protocol that we use can help. But I explained to many patients that the difficulty is that it's a desert in there and we're walking around trying to spritz a desert with a little bit of water. And so if we can get them off some of their medicines simultaneously or, or taper the dose and combine the dry mouth protocol along with some pilocarpine or ephesite, we will do that. Now, there's obvious uh, drug interactions you have to check with pilocarpine ephesite can also rule out that they don't have you know, cardiac abnormalities, uh, gallbladder uh, constriction issues, or any other urinary bladder issues. Or um, So I, I encourage you know, that if you're going to be using those medicines that you not only do drug-drug interactions, but you check to make sure that there's no contraindications to using those medicus, medicines. Now, we will also do a pilocarpine challenge in the clinic. So generally, we'll give them a five milligram of, of pilocarpine and then um, see whether or not 30 minutes later they produce saliva. So we don't just prescribe it and walk out the door. We actually do a pilocarpine challenge to make sure that it will work <clears throat> before we prescribe. So Dr. Miller, once we have uh, ruled out the hyposalivation and we have a diagnosis of burning mouth disorder, how do we manage those patients? So the literature would suggest that clonazepam is the drug of choice. Uh, Clonazepam is a benzodiazepine, as you well known, a GABA agonist. And this type of drug has been shown in three clinical trials, randomized controlled trials, to effectively reduce the level of pain anywhere from 35 to about 50% in the patient population. So that's the good news. The bad news is that the randomized controlled trials have been done on a total of 67 patients. So we are basing our sort of our management protocols on the best evidence that has involved 67 patients, of which uh, 90 to 95% of those patients have been females. So very few males have been tested, and we don't know whether clonazepam works as well as in men as it appears to work in women. Now, there are other case-controlled uh, case studies or case series, retrospective studies, that have also shown that clonazepam is effective. Generally, the, the question comes up is how, how to use that because, the, again, the, those studies, those three randomized controls trials have used different approaches. Some use a pill, half a milligram pill, and say um, swallowed pill. The others say uh, put the pill on the end of your tongue and let it dissolve for three minutes and then spit it out. Another study says put the half milligram tab on your tongue 
uh, let it dissolve for three minutes and then swallow it. And then there's also been studies um, that have looked at topical solutions of clonazepam ranging from 0.1 milligrams per mil to 0.5 milligrams per mil with the most current suggesting 0.1 milligram is probably a little better than the 0.5 because of fewer side effects. And really there's been very little data that has gone on to look at, you know, numbers needed to treat, uh, calculating how many patients would you have to treat with clonazepam before you um, get an effective result and um, do no harm. Now about the studies indicate that about 35% of patients who take clonazepam will experience some side effects ranging from dizziness to uh, a variety of other cognitive uh, issues. And the number needed to treat is probably around four to five. So you probably have to treat four or five individuals with clonazepam before you really see a, a, a really good response in the group. Now, the other things in the randomized control trials is that they don't always report the number of patients who responded. Oftentimes what you get is the mean of the group. So that means, you know, even if the mean of the group decreases by 50%, you could have a third that didn't respond at all, a third that responded somewhat, and a third that responded really good. And so then the mean is shifted a little bit towards the really good, and you still have a third that it didn't respond. Hence the number needed to treat on stains that I've calculated around four to five. And uh, Dr. Miller, what about other approaches? Is alpha-lipoic acid uh, a good approach for burning mouth disorder? So there are other approaches. Alpha-lipoic acid is one of those. It's considered a, a sort of a nutraceutical category, um, antioxidant, uh, supposed to help in neuron neuronal healing, nerve receptor healing, things like that, and maybe patients who have a triggering event might respond a little bit better in those instances. But again, none of the studies have really gone to do the study in that way. Instead, they treat all patients equally, whether they have initiated event or not. Alpha-lipoic acid has shown to give relief in about a third of patients, uh, similar to placebo or slightly better than placebo in the meta-analyses and in the systematic reviews that are performed, alpha-lipoic acid has been documented to be no better than placebo. Nevertheless, if you tried a lot of other medications and nothing seems to be working, uh, clinicians have used alpha-lipoic acid. In other uh, countries outside of the United States, uh, low-level laser therapy has been used, uh, particularly in South America, um, so a little bit in Europe. And there is some promising results with low-level la laser therapy. The real question comes up is, should you combine therapies? Uh, we haven't really moved into that category much, uh, whether you should combine alpha-lipoic acid with clonazepam, combine clonazepam with LLT, LLT which is low-level laser, uh, low laser therapy, um, you know, generally we try to treat with one entity at a time and not try to combine those, but they could be combined if you're seeing a little bit of an effect with one and you're, you're just not getting where you need to go. Clonazepam, as you increase dose, you know, max dose, in my opinion, is around two mg per day. And generally when patients get above 1.5 mg per day, you'll start to notice some slurring in their speech that um, is not really documented a whole lot. So if your patient's slurring a, a little bit, uh, they, their dosage probably should be backed off, in my opinion. 
so really the best agent right now looks like it's clonazepam. Um, and I would even proceed that with ruling out and trying to get saliva back in the mouth because oftentimes patients burning goes away. So yesterday's patient, good example, um, you know, says she doesn't have any pain. So in that sense, where it's a success from a clinician's point of view, yet she rated a pain in eight, and she's really saying it's a taste abnormality. And so we spent a lot of time talking about saliva and taste and never really moved her into clonazepam, never moved her into alpha-lipoic acid, never moved her into the other therapies, because in my opinion, her salivary flow is less than 0.1 mil per uh, minute, and that's where she needs to be treated. How do capsaicin and clonazepam topical use compare for treatment of BMD, Dr. Miller? So there is some effectiveness shown with capsaicin. And what it does is it depletes substance P from the tissues in the burning area. So the patient would self-apply the capsaicin one or more times during the day. Substance P would be released. And it's a desensitization protocol eventually more and more substance P is depleted. It's not available there to cause the burning and can be used for patients. I have not used it a whole lot because it's, it induces more discomfort at the beginning and patients have to be willing to sort of get past that. Nevertheless, Joel Epstein and others have shown that capsaicin does help a desensitize a burning sensation. Uh, I've just been a little bit more often in the clonazepam uh, category than the capsation, but certainly can be tried. And you can even try things like neurogel on patients. Uh, in my experience, it's um, some of the men I've seen, their burning complaints tends to be a little more posterior around the foliate papilla. And I think, you know, there's some dryness uh, in that sensation for whatever reason, they seem to complain in that area. Women, it seems to be a little more anterior, uh, but you know, your experiences may be slightly different. So, Dr. Miller, taking in consideration that it seems like we do not have yet come up with good, effective uh, treatments for these patients, what's the prognosis uh, of burning mouth disorder patients? So, prognosis is a really interesting question because it's a subjective evaluation of the clinician of where do we think this patient will respond. And we've, we've made up four or five categories, poor, fair, good, excellent. And we sort of arbitrarily drop them into a category without using any objective criteria at all to drive uh, that decision, which I think is not really a, a good way of approaching uh, any of our clinical treatments. We should be basing these decisions on evidence and, and data-driven decisions. So what would really drive the re, your choice of one of those four categories for a patient and how do you use an algorithm to help that? So dentistry really hasn't moved to algorithms to help them. So we continue to use, in my opinion, sort of old techniques. And prognosis is one of those where I, I don't really like to throw prognosis. Also, if you want to read about how good uh, we are at predicting the future, which is what a prognosis is, humans are very poor at predicting the future. Um, and if you want to read more about that, read, read the book called Super Predictors, Really, only about 2% of the population are super predictors, and they, want, and they have very objective criteria that are very accurate and valid that they use to help them predict what's going to occur next or in the future. And if we were all really good at predicting the future, then we would all have our money in the stock market or betting on a football game or basketball game, and we would all be making money because we're all such great predictors. So I will just say that choosing a prognosis is probably not 
the best way to go. But I do find that compassion and caring helps a whole lot with these patients and explaining to them that oftentimes salivary flow is an underlying thing that is not well measured in these patients. And we should start there. And if we start there, I do think we, we stand a better chance of getting a good outcome. Part of our problem is we, we have a blind spot right now in dentistry and our blind spot with burning mouth is hyposalivation. So like any other blind spot, we really need to do a better job of, of sort of finding these blind spots and realizing that humans have blind spots. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. Uh, Dr. Sani, do you have any other questions for Dr. Miller at this time? I think uh, no more questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. I mean, this is really interesting and useful information for all of us. Thank you. Dr. Miller, I just want to finish up by asking you if there's any other final thoughts that you would like to share with, with our audience. Sure. Um, as I just said about blind spots, you know, with humans, we, we have a lot of biases in uh, the cognitive sciences are really good at identifying over 40 different biases that humans have in the way we make decisions. So, you know, blind spot is just one of the biases that we have. And when we don't assess something like dry mouth, then we don't treat it. So the condition doesn't really improve. So we look to treat it a different way and we continue to overlook probably the root cause. So in medicine, we really encourage you to find the root cause. And this is one reason why different treatments keep getting proposed for burning mouth. And we have a laundry list now ranging from capsation to clonazepam to amitriptyline to disipramine to low-level laser to um, other agents that are antioxidants. And so, you know, we have a half a dozen of these or more and the condition improves a little bit, but doesn't really get better. And so until we start to realize that we have a blind spot and start addressing that, I think we're not going to be making a lot of progress in this area. And I, I will say that many years ago, I talked with an expert in the field about looking at dry mouth and they looked at me like I was totally crazy. They, they kept saying, well, this is a neurological entity. Why in the world would you be looking at saliva? I said, because it isn't being ruled out. And since it's present in about 70% of patients, it's just a logical place to start. And then, you know, if you've, if you've actually produced more saliva in their mouth, then I think it's reasonable to move on. The problem is the patients want a quick fix. Here in the United States, we're known for fast everything, fast food, fast treatment, give me a pill and make me better, when actually it's going to take a little bit of work between you and the patient to get to a place where you're both on the same page. And so I encourage everybody to be patient, um, establish that relationship with the patient, and work together towards solving what is the underlying causes. Oftentimes, they're taking medicines because they're overweight. Uh, they have diabetes or high blood pressure. And a little bit of exercise, weight loss, and eating right goes a long way, but often is not the recommendation that we give them because they want a pill in their hand when they walk out the door. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for sharing with us your extensive knowledge and extensive experience. It's been great to have you with us today, uh, and thanks for, for your time. Sure. It's been my pleasure, Dr. Moreno and Dr. Sani. You'll have a great day, and best in the management of these patients. 
Dr. Miller is professor and division chief at the Oral Diagnosis, Oral Medicine, and Oral Radiology uh, Division at the University of Kentucky College of Dentistry. Thank you for listening.